good morning. If you'd like to take your Bibles out, open them up to the book of Mark. We're going to be looking again in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 9 uh, and continuing a look that we started last week considering the, uh, an event that happened in the life of Jesus, specifically revolving around this time of His transfiguration. <clears throat> I'm not going to get very far without this, am I? So while you're turning your Bibles there, and while we're thinking about what happened last week, the accounts of that transfiguration, I want to say how thankful I am to be here with you all. Thankful for some faces that I haven't seen in a while, two of them specifically. Uh, one, certainly Scott Coleman, and I'm so thankful that he's been able to be back here with us. Uh, I don't know if I can find a way to do it, but I'm going to chain his leg to this pew here so he can't leave again, and we'll have to be able to spend some more time with us. But also for Brother Charles and him being back with us. It's been a while since we've been able to see him due to his health. And we're so thankful that his health has been restored and that he is feeling better. And it's such an encouragement to see all of our number. When we are here gathered together, it lifts me up. It strengthens me. I hope it strengthens you as well. In Mark chapter 9, I, do you ever do this? Do you ever, you ever read through the gospel, read through, through God's word, and you find something you say, That's, that is my favorite Thing in the Bible right now. I just I studied this and I love it so much. That's me in the book of Mark. I read something in Mark and I'm like, man, that is, that is awesome. That is so cool. I love that. I love the message that it has for me. And it's my favorite verse in the Bible until I read the next one. And then that one is, oh, wow, that is so neat. And the connections that it makes in, in Scripture. And that's my favorite verse. I'm having a hard time picking my favorite verse in Mark because every passage that I read just seems to add to the next, and, and I just keep going back and forth over what my favorite is. And when I get here to Mark chapter 9, and starting in verse 14, I've kind of done that. I've been reading through this, and it's, you know, I, I thought that Mount of Transfiguration scene was one of the coolest things in, in the book of Mark that we'd seen so far and, until I read this, and I thought, man, there's a great message here for me. There's something that applies to me, and I, I've thoroughly enjoyed studying through this. I hope that that has come through in these lessons and that you have enjoyed it as well. I want to read this passage, but I want to read it a little bit at a time and just kind of really get a picture of what's happening in Mark chapter 9. So let's start just in verses 14 through, through 16, and let's see what's going on here. And I'm going to put a lot of these verses, all of these verses, up on the overhead for us to read together from the New King James, but certainly follow along in your Bibles as well if you're reading from another translation. So in verses 14 through 16, it says, When he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him, and he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? So what's, what's happening here in these first couple of verses? We have to remember Jesus has been on the mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. He went up with Peter, James, and John. They go, they see this glorious sight. The glory of God revealed through the physical body of Jesus. His face shines like, bright sun, like the, the bright snow. And, and then they witness Elijah and Moses talking with him. They hear the voice from heaven. This awesome sight is, is what's happened. And they're coming back from that. They're traveling together back to where the other nine are. And when he gets there, he's met with this argument. Now, have you ever been busy? I mean, really busy? 
Has there been a moment in your life where you're like, there is not another single thing that I can take on. I am stretched to my limit. I'm doing everything. I'm running in every different direction. And, and I just can't imagine anything else. And then someone comes to you with that other, I've got something else for you. I've got one more project. Can you, can you please take this on? And you just feel like, I'm going to break. I can't handle anymore. I wonder if Jesus was ever like that. I wonder if Jesus ever felt, just, ugh, does this ever end? In fact, I actually know that in some way he felt that based on some verses we're going to read in this very passage. But you think about what his life has been like and how can you blame him to not feel that way? As Jesus has come to this world, just in this past week, he's experienced so many different things. At the beginning of the week, he experienced this moment with his, with his disciples where it's clicking Peter makes that confession. You are Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you have this kind of big high that's going on in the account right now. And then immediately following that, Peter that makes this confession is rebuking Jesus for saying, I have to die. So what it just seemed, you come up from this high and then you just come crashing down. And now you have conflict. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter. You have so many things going on. Jesus is now trying to teach them in the following verses what it means to follow me, to lay down or take up your cross and follow me. The, the, the cost of discipleship, he's now it's very clear to him, I've got to show them that following me is more than just making this confession. Peter, you've got to understand that, that the suffering that, that needs to take place for being a disciple of me. And so then he takes them up on that mountain and you have all of that going on and, and the teaching that's going on there. And again, you think, well, that's kind of a high. But then immediately on the way down the mountain, they're going, we don't really get it. They're, having, they're, they're still not understanding it. And now when you get to the bottom of the mountain, the first thing he runs into is this huge crowd. And you can just picture this. Jesus walking back into the scene. And here's the nine disciples that he left. And surrounding them is this crowd. And you have the scribes mixed in there. And they're arguing and fighting. And it's just like, what is going on? What have I walked into? That's what he says. What are you discussing with them? And that question is directed towards the scribes. The ones that were, that were arguing, the ones that were disputing, he says, what's going on here? But there's something else that happens in that passage. Something else that I think I've glossed over in the past, and I was wondering, as I read it this time, what did that mean? Verse 15, it says, when they saw him, they were amazed, greatly amazed, and ran to him, greeting him. I don't think I'd ever really thought about that, per that verse before. Why were the people greatly amazed at Jesus? They've, they've probably seen Him before. The scribes have, have been having a lot of fighting with Him th throughout His life. There's a good chance that many of these people had seen Him. What about this moment amazed them? Now, some would say they saw Him as the answer to the problem that they were fighting about. But that certainly couldn't have been true for all of them. The scribes are, are kind of fighting against him most often. So it's not likely that they see Jesus and go, oh, the, the answer is here. If we remember back to the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' face shining. I wonder if this is not similar to the account of, in Exodus 34, when Moses sees the glory of God and his face shines. And as he comes back sometime after that and comes into contact with the Israelites, they see him and they're terrified because his face was still shining. 
I submit they're in awe of this because he still has the effects of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. That transformation that took place on that mountain, some way, still has an effect. But Jesus completely skips over this. This is not his purpose. His glory being seen by others here is, is, is not what he wants them to, to be focused on. So when they come to him amazed and they greet him, he doesn't say, you know, you notice anything different about me? Look a little bit different to you guys? Maybe now you're going to start believing that I've got some glory? He doesn't say any of that. He says, what's going on? What's this fighting about? And so let's read on to find out their answer. One of the crowd, in verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you, my son, who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. What a powerful statement that is made by the, the father of this young man. This is the answer for why there is argument, why there is dispute. There is this father of someone who's been possessed by an unclean spirit, and he says, I need relief for my son, and this man is supposed to be able to do it. I'll take him to him. And he gets there, and, and Jesus is not there, but his disciples are. And he says, well, you all cast out the unclean spirit, and for some reason the disciples are unable to do so. So when we read this, we should first remember a couple things. Number one, they could cast out unclean spirits. It wasn't that they didn't have an ability to. In Mark chapter 6 and in verse 7, we read, He calls the twelve to Himself, and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. This is part of that limited commission where He sent them out and they go out casting out spirits in the name of Jesus Christ. They have that ability. They have been granted the power to do so. The problem then is not in the reality that casting out demons is impossible. And so I hope the sadness then of verse 17 stands out to us. The sadness of verse 17 says there is a failure on someone's part. Whose part was it? There is an utter failure here, and I think we could see several people involved. But to really help us see who the failure is, or what the failure is found in, let's read the very next verse. Verse 19, Jesus' answer. He says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Do you, want, you know, before we look at what Jesus actually said, I want to think for a moment about the things that Jesus didn't say in this passage. This guy brings his son to Jesus and says, Look, my son's got an unclean spirit. I brought him to you. You weren't here. Your disciples tried. They couldn't do it. Jesus doesn't flip the script and say, Look, you don't understand. That's a really really powerful demon. You've got a demon in there that's unlike any other demon on earth. You've got to understand, that's, that's just too much to ask of these guys to cast that one out. He makes zero excuses for the fact that this demon couldn't, get, couldn't be brought out of this young child. Instead, he goes straight to what he goes to oftentimes whenever people are dealing with trouble in the world. He says, Oh, faithless generation. You see that whenever they, they are worried and scared on the boat. How long will you, uh, 
Will, will you be in fear? How, how long am I going to have to be with you, you faithless generation? We see him say things like this over and over again. And this is not a new thing, is what I want to see from that. Whenever Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown, he's amongst his own people, and he goes into the synagogue, and they, they're, they're amazed by his teachings, but then they start thinking, this is just Joseph's son. This is just Mary's son. This is a carpenter. This, how can this be the Son of God? And because of their unbelief, it meant that Jesus did no great works in Nazareth. So, possibly, part of the problem here falls on the unbelief of the crowd. But part of the problem also falls, possibly, on the unbelief of the disciples. Not that they didn't believe that it could be done. As we've already seen, they have done it. Uh, Mark chapter 6 shows that He gave them that power. And we read from other accounts that when they came back, they were telling Him about the things that they, that they had done. So what on earth could have caused them to fail then? What could have caused this not to work this time? We're going to get to that question in a minute. But I also want to think a little bit about the patience of Jesus in this account. You think of the phrase that he says. Oh, faithless generation. This generation, and, and, and that's going to include a lot more than just a one little crowd. He's talking about all the people that he is dealing with in his life right now. They're faithless. They don't see. They don't get it. They don't understand what I'm trying to get them to understand. Peter didn't get it. Even when he made that confession, he give, gets part of it. But he doesn't get all of it. Because immediately following that, he, says, he just completely shows, I don't understand why you have to die. He doesn't get it completely. Jesus is putting up with this kind of stuff. And he says, how long am I going to have to put up with this? How long am I going to have to bear up with you? How long am I going to be with you? And you know, for a, a period of time in our lives, we had two dogs. We had one that was very young, a puppy. Hadn't had her maybe uh, a couple of months. And we had one that was very old. Uh, he was going on 13 years. His favorite thing to do was to lay around and do nothing. Now, when I introduced that puppy to that old dog, how well do you think they got along? He wants to lay around and do nothing. She wants to climb. She wants to bite. She wants to bother and he put up with that for a little while. But it didn't take him very long to go, I ain't putting up with this anymore. And every time she'd come around, he'd snip at her, he'd bite at her, growl at her. And, and we constantly had to deal with this problem of them fighting with one another. We understand that, in a sense, with this you know, very physical situation with these two dogs. But Jesus is dealing with this on a much grander scale. Here is the Son of God coming to His creation and He's putting up with people that don't believe He's the Son of God, do believe He's the Son of God, but just cannot see what He's trying to say. It's so many frustrating things. And you know, when we sing songs like 10,000 Angels, He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world, set Him free. We think about that in light of the cross, and that's absolutely true. How many times in His life could He said, I'm tired of putting up with this. I'm tired of this generation that even though sign after sign is given to them, 
I'm tired of it. They don't get it. In fact, later we see him lamenting, weeping over this generation. Not calling 10,000 angels. Not calling down fire and brimstone. Calling down tears from his heart. The patience of Christ is so amazing in these passages right here. How long am I going to have to put up with this? How long am I going to have to bear with this? But I will. Bring the boy to me. And so he does. He brings the boy to him. And when he does, we see in verses 20 through 23 that something happens. When he saw him, starting off in verse 20, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus has the boy come to him. The boy comes, and, and when the spirit sees Christ, immediately he, start, he goes into action. So he turns and asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe. All things are possible to him who believes. So Jesus learns the backstory here, and what an anguishing story it is. This is not someone who has lived a long, full life, and at the end of their life had something terrible happen to them. This is someone who from childhood has dealt with the pain of this demon. And what a terrible demon does seem to be. Even though Jesus doesn't say anything about, wow, that's a really bad demon in there, you look at some of the other demons that, we've, that we see in the Scripture. Like the demon that gave the young girl the ability to prophesy and to tell the future and the fortunes of others, and people were making a profit off of her. And I don't want to sound for a minute like we should look at that account and say, oh, she had it easy. She was possessed by an unclean spirit. But we don't read that an unclean spirit was throwing her into fire. That unclean spirit was throwing her in the water trying to drown her. That it was causing her to grind and gnash her teeth and to become rigid like one who is dead or maybe even epileptic. We don't see any of those things happening at all. And so you see this and go immediately, man, that's bad what he's dealing with. But he's dealing with it as a child. And I can just picture the father doing the same thing that I would be doing. Why? Why my son? Why this child, this innocent child, what has he done to deserve this? And this is the same question that Job asks. Why? Why am I experiencing suffering? And you go back and read through the book of Job. You study through it. And one thing that you find there is that answer is never given. Job is never told why he experiences his suffering. He is just reminded time and again, who God is. And just like we saw in, late, in earlier passages, glory comes through suffering. And I don't know why this child suffered from childhood. But Jesus used this moment of this child experiencing so much to bring glory to the Father. Sorry, my computer is not paying attention to me today. I want you to notice one more thing in this passage before we move on. And that's the last thing that the Father says. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
What a statement. If you can do anything. You know, there's a lot of things that have been reported about Jesus, that Jesus has done. And His disciples are claiming He's the Son of God. The Father says, if you can do anything at all, He puts 100% responsibility for this on Christ. If you can do it, Christ, then do it. It's kind of similar to what His brothers were telling Him. If you can do these things, why do you hide? Go, go into Judea and do these things. Show the world. It puts all the responsibility on Christ. Christ knows He can do it. That's how He responds. He says, if you can believe... I love the way that this is translated in other, in, in other versions. The ESV says... Uh, or you know, The New King James says, if you can believe, all things are possible. But the ESV says, if I can... All things are possible for one who believes. He completely flips the script. The Father says, if you can do anything, He says, whoa, I know I can do it. If I can do it, that's what you're wondering? No. If you can believe, all things are possible. If you can believe. And I, don't, I just can't help but wondering the smack that those words must have felt, not just on the Father, but on the disciples that failed. I wonder if he didn't kind of glance over his shoulder at him as he said these things. Do you all hear me too? You guys that failed to pass this out? Not you can do anything except for cast out this really hard demon. You can do all things if you believe. That gives us a very good hint as to why they weren't able to cast out this demon. And so how does the man respond to this? He responds to it with one of the best passages in this account. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, I believe. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't know a single Christian today who I imagine hasn't felt this way at some point in their life. I believe. But I need to believe more. I have faith. But I need more faith. I rely and I have trust, but God, I need more trust. And if you look at your life today and say, no, I've never felt like that. I've never felt the heart-wrenching realization of this man. Then my suggestion is you need to spend more time in God's Word. Because Peter, Peter later tells the readers in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, the last words of that epistle are grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why should we grow in grace and knowledge? Well, where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Peter is telling the readers we need to grow in grace, we need to grow in knowledge so that we grow in our faith. That's not something that reaches a pinnacle and we say, all right, I've got what I need. I've got the belief that I need. I've got the faith that I need. I have the trust that I need. We need, to, we need to have this prayer more often. Lord, I believe, but I need more help. I need a stronger faith. We feel that way sometimes when we, when we are weak. When we fall short. But what about when we feel like we're, we're strong? What about when we feel like we're on top of the world when it comes to our spiritual walk? Is that not one of the most dangerous places for us to be? When we feel like everything's going right? 
That's where Israel was when they said, you know what? We don't need God anymore. Look at us. As a nation, we are rich. We have everything we could possibly ask for. And what happens? They begin to turn away to other gods. They begin to turn away to other desires. Whenever things are going good for us, maybe more than ever, we need to go to God and say, strengthen my faith. Make it stronger. And that's exactly what this father does. And Jesus' response to this is seen in verses 25 through 27. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and he came out of him and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifting him, lifted him up, and he arose. Notice the power of God at work here. I read this and I can't help but think back to Naaman. Naaman wanted his leprosy cleansed and was so upset that it was so simple. The prophet doesn't even come out and see him. Sends somebody else out and says, go wash in the Jordan. Just go wash in that dirty, filthy Jordan. Do it seven times. And his upsetting thing was, that's, that's, not, that's not wow enough for me. Notice the power of God here. It, it is wow enough for me, but by many standards, it's not. He sees people coming together. He sees the crowd starting to gather around. And so he immediately turns to the Spirit. And he doesn't shake his hands. He doesn't call down lightning from heaven. He doesn't cause a great big whirlwind to cover them up with dust. He doesn't make some sort of concoction out of, out of materials from the, from the ground. He just simply says, get out and never come back. It's simple. And for that reason, many times people just can't grasp God's power. Because they say, that's not, that's not God enough. To just have words spoken? But look at the response. The spirit, this deaf and dumb spirit, heard the word of God. And it greatly reacts to this, convulses, throws him down, and people see him and they go, You just killed him. You just killed him. But yet Jesus takes him by the hand and he lifts him up and he arose. Now, I don't want to go too far in making connections here. But it dawned on me, is this not exactly what happened to me? Has this not exact count happened to many of you? Was I not clutched in the control of Satan? Was I not struggling in this life to be free from his influence and his power in my soul? He wanted me dead. He would give nothing more than to cast me into fire for eternity with Him. He wants to harm me. And as if I were deaf, I wasn't listening to the Word of God that was being spoken to me often. And I wasn't speaking as if I was mute the Word of God. But one day I heard it. One day I believed. And on that day I died. I was buried in baptism. And then I arose out of those waters to stand with Christ. 
Do you see that picture here? Do you see the young man gripped by Satan, falling to the ground dead, and Jesus lifting him up to stand beside him? Now again, that may be a stretch, but I don't believe it's that big a stretch. We see how Jesus loves us. We see His power can save us from the control of the evil one. We see how His words can move us from death to a higher plane standing with Him. And in just a few short moments, if you've not yet done that, you're going to have an opportunity to do so. But we need to see that all of this, as as just wow as it is, this isn't the purpose of what's going on. Healing this child is not Jesus' purpose. We see the purpose in the next two verses. And when He came into the house, His disciples asked Him privately, why could we not cast it out? And He said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, you may have a footnote in your Bible, or maybe just completely omits the words and fasting. Uh, The New King James has it in there, but with a footnote. That phrase is found in some manuscripts, but the earliest of manuscripts omit it. And so for that reason, many of your translations, maybe like the ESV or the New American Standard maybe, will will omit that phrase. Or again, put it in in a footnote or, or italics. Jesus ultimately says to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. One thing I love about these two verses is you see the direct humanity of Jesus' disciples. Sometimes we get the mindset that His disciples were these, you know, just uber-spiritual guys that we will never be like. But they were not. Peter illustrates that often, that he was not. But these guys, notice what they do here. When Jesus casts the demon out, it's very clear that it can be done. Jesus just, at least with the power of God, Jesus has done it. So... They don't go with the crowd standing around and say, Hey, Jesus, teach us. They wait till we go into the house and we are in private. There is a little bit of shame in that. We're not going to do this in front of everybody. We're going to step aside and say, Can you please explain to me what went wrong? Now, we, we tried to cast that demon out. We've cast out demons before. For the life of me, Jesus, I can't figure out why this didn't work when I tried to cast this demon out. Why did I fail? And what's Jesus' response? Did you pray? This demon can only be cast out by prayer. Would prayer not be a part of what you would do if you are experiencing something of this magnitude? If you see a child with an unclean spirit, would you not go to God and say, I would love for you to cast this demon out? Obviously, that's not something that they did. And I wonder why. As I mentioned before, the prayer of, or the request of this father, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a prayer that we should pray when we're on top of the world. These disciples have cast out demons before. They've walked with God. They have been so close to Christ. It's possible that they got the idea that, you know what, this is like any other demon. We don't need Jesus to come back. We'll go ahead and take care of this ourselves. We can do it. It sounds like they were even trying to cast this demon out with their own abilities. Jesus says, 
This generation is an unfaithful generation. Jesus says, this kind of demon can only be cast out with prayer. It indicates to me that both of those things were probably missing in their efforts to help this young man. That is the incredible point that needs to be taken away from this account. Jesus isn't with them, but he's only separated from them by, by a, a short distance. I mean, even if it was a couple miles, it's nothing in relation to the fact that he's about to be killed. And they won't be with him any longer. Now, when he's still on this earth and they're failing this miserably because of a lack of faith, because of a self-reliance that, does, that says, I'm not even going to pray, how much worse will that get when he's gone? This is the great application of this passage. And that still applies to us today. How many times have you asked the question, why am I failing? In my own life, I've lost count. I've lost count of the times when I've said, why am I failing in parenting? Why are my children not getting this? Why are they refusing to understand the concepts and the precepts that I'm trying to show them? Why am I failing? Why am I failing in my marriage? Why does this relationship between me and my spouse, why is it not what it needs to be? Why is there anger there? Why is there animosity there? Why am I failing in my relationships with my family, with my brothers and, and, and my, my parents, with my coworkers and friends? Why is this relationship falling apart? Why am I failing in business? Why am I failing in hobbies? Why am I failing in a diet? Why am I failing? How many times have we asked ourselves that question? Do you hear Jesus' response? Did you think to pray? How many marriages are never sanctified around prayer? How many marriages are filled with two people trying to do it on their own? I'm going to be the best husband I can possibly be. I'm going to make this work. I'm going to force myself through it. We're going to make it work without ever going to God and saying, I believe, but I need to be a better husband. And I need your power for that. How many parents cry and weep over their children but never take the time to say, God, please help us in this. Prayer is the ultimate way that a follower of Christ says, it's not about me. It's about you. And I need you. And I open myself up to you. And I beg you, please help. We need to be people of prayer. We need to pray more in our marriages. We need to pray more individually. We need to pray more congregationally. Men of Blake Street, we need to be men of prayer. We need to set time apart where we come together and say, there's things going on as a congregation. There's things going on as a community. There's things going on as a country that are on our hearts. We need to pray about those things. And women of Lake Street, you as well, set time apart to say, we're going to come together as sisters in Christ. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to pray for the men of the congregation to make wise decisions. We're going to pray for God to help us to see how we can be better followers of Christ. And congregation, we come together once every five, every fifth Sunday. Every month with the fifth Sunday. And that's a good thing. But we can pray more. 
we could set more time apart to say, look, there are issues going on. I hope that whenever there are big issues going on, I pray that we will be establishing elderships here someday. And I hope that we set time apart for that as individuals, as the men and as the women, as the congregation to say this cannot just be forced into action. We need God in our relationships with one another. We need God in this family here at Lake Street. We need to be people of prayer. And so, in fact, would you do that with me right now? Father, we thank you for your great power. We thank you for your grace, which shows us and teaches us how to live and walk righteously. And we thank you for making us a people zealous, and we are zealous for your good works. And Father, we ask that as we strive to be holy as you are holy, and as we strive to bring others to see your glory, that you bless our efforts. Bless our efforts as a congregation. Bless our efforts as individuals. Bless our efforts as married couples and parents and friends. And we pray that you will be with those hearts who are gripped in the power of Satan. Help us to bring them to your power. Help us to be the catalyst in which they come to see and to know you, that they may be set free and raised to life with your Son. And we pray all this in His name. Amen. I hope that learning Jesus' message to His disciples today, disciples who failed, will say, you know what? They weren't that different than you and me either. I've failed before too. And I need to be stronger in my prayer life. If this morning we can help you, not only in being stronger in your prayer life, but especially in being like this young man, taken from the power of Satan and moved into a position where he's standing beside Christ. We want to help you with that. We want to help you to receive life, eternal life, free from the guilt of sin. And we want you to know that that's our desire to help, but it's not our ability. The ability lies in the invitation which belongs to Christ. It's His invitation to you. An invitation that's not just open while we sing this invitation song. An invitation that is open 24-7, every day of the week. But it's an invitation that has an expiration date. We do not know the day or the hour when He will return. Let us not waste the time that we are given. Let us look at today as a day for an opportunity for salvation. If we can help you come to Him to receive yours, we would greatly desire to do so. Won't you please let it be known as we stand and as we sing.